MSW Media. It looks like President Biden will appoint the first black woman to ever serve on the United States Supreme Court. What progress do we still need to make for women in the law? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before we begin, I want to thank BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash on topic and get 10% off your first month. I also want to thank the people who have supported our podcast over the years, including James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. All right, so Patty, I have to say, I really thought the recent news about President Biden appointing a black woman to the Supreme Court, we don't know who it is yet, but we know it's going to be a black woman, at least that's what the president has indicated. It's almost like a Rorschaching blot to me. Your views on this, to me, tell you more about yourself uh, than they do about Biden. I mean, there's so I, I've gotten so many people telling me, you know, uh, they're they're concerned or you know w- w- upset about it, and to me, it, it reveals more about them than it does about about uh, Biden or the pick. Right, and it usually reveals what they it's what they hear. Right, it's not what's being said or the context of it, because. Uh, as we've talked about many times, the, the history of the Supreme Court, the history of this country, almost everything until what the 1960s was entirely white male dominated. And you, you have a couple of sprinkles of hope here and there, but it's still a very slow uh, progress road for us. Um, I remember I was uh, I was in grade school when Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed and I remember being excited. And I'll tell you, I grew up in a household where my parents uh, always helped me believe I could do whatever I wanted, whether so I, I like as a kid, I remember not thinking I can't do that because I'm a woman. Right. I, I just never had that. Um, but I will say like when, when, uh, Justice Sotomayor was appointed, I, I, I mean, we cried cause she was the first Latina. It was meaningful. It was, um, something that re- really, um, felt encouraging as though we mattered more than we had before. And I can't imagine in the, I, I can't remember when Clarence Thomas was appointed. Was there a similar feeling? Do you think nationally, like, you know, we're making more progress because we have a, a black justice on the Supreme court, another black justice. I don't know. I mean, Thurgood Marshall, who he who he replaced, was above and beyond a typical Supreme Court justice. Obviously, you know, he you know, he was, I believe, the first African-American to sit in the court. But 
putting that to the side, he before he became a Supreme Court justice, Thurgood Marshall was already a historical figure, uh, obviously leading the charge in Brown versus Board of Education and so many other path-breaking cases uh, when he worked with, with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So I, I think it was for for civil rights activists for for you know i certainly can't speak for for everyone and certainly can't speak for black people but i think there was a sense at the time that it was disappointing uh that clarence thomas was the replacement for thurgood marshall uh very different context than today right where we're talking about it's not it's not as if uh, ida b wells uh, is being replaced by somebody else Right. Well, and, and, you know, Clarence Thomas is, as you pointed out, the antithesis, really, of what uh, Thurgood Marshall represented in the work that he did in making strides for civil rights in this country for everyone. And Clarence Thomas, I remember almost immediately saying that affirmative action was horrible, uh, you know, and, and pushing back against the fact that he was there because he was black. And I remember watching those hearings and feeling like legislators didn't want to come across as racist to him, but certainly had no problem being misogynistic to Anita Hill. It was it was very confusing for me because, I, I, you know, I was young and I'm trying to understand all of this, but it seemed as though, you know, they, they like they felt eager or seemed eager to pat themselves on the back for uh, put, you know, appointing or going through the hearings process with Clarence Thomas and going to have another black juror uh, and at the expense of and, and really kind of pertinent to our conversation at, about Anita Hill, you know, about women, women in the law. It's definitely, I think, worth noting that – and one thing I think I mentioned to you recently, Patty, is if you took all the Supreme Court justices in the entire history of the United States Supreme Court, you could not fill one slate of nine justices with non-white males. Okay, So right. literally almost every – all but seven Supreme Court justices have been white men. And it's very – when we're talking about women who make up, by the way, over half the population in the United States, uh, they're the majority, not the minority. Uh, they uh, have not really sat in the court till very recently, our lifetimes, and there have not been very many sitting on the court. So, But, but here, of course, you have uh, – obviously, there's never been a black woman sitting on the Supreme Court. And yet what I've been hearing from certain uh, folks on the right is – Oh, you're cutting out all these qualified candidates. There aren't that many candidates. And I got to tell you, Betty, I personally know, like personally know whether they're law school classmates, uh, judges I've practiced in front of opposing counsel. I know several qualified black women who would be fantastic Supreme Court justices. I'm actually interested to see which of the of the black women I already know may be on the <laughs> Supreme Court. So I, I don't I just find it bizarre, the idea that um, there are plenty of qualified candidates for this job. Right. Well, what was the uh, there was somebody on Twitter who made a whole stink about if you're not appointing this person, there's you know, there's no one more qualified. And yet where were they when Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Coney Island were all being uh, vetted for their positions as justices? I don't remember that. Yeah. It was Srinivasan who was the person he suggested who is a, fa- a fantastic judge in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. But you're right that uh, there's Mr. Shapiro, I believe, I think, was it? Uh, but in, in any event, um, nonetheless, you know, the suggestion was essentially this is the one only best <laughs> qualified person in the world, right. is Judge Srinivasan. And the, the truth of the matter is 
there are a lot of fantastic judges out there, both in the federal and state courts. And there are plenty of people, by the way, many Supreme Court justices in our history who are very famous, uh, like Hugo Black and so forth, who were not Supreme Court justices uh, before, or excuse me, were not judges before getting on the bench. Uh, and even folks on the right more recently, uh, you know, Amy Coney Barrett was not uh is not was not a judge beforehand. So there's plenty of potential choices out there, and uh, you know the uh, to me the 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 idea that there's only one person who could be a judge or a justice I think is sort of silly. There are a lot of you know millions of of lawyers. I you know I, I imagine if you total them all up in the United States, and there are plenty of very highly qualified ones. Absolutely. So, so Patty, one thing I, I did find interesting, by the way, when you were talking a moment ago, you talked about what Sonia Sotomayor's appointment meant to you. I mean, one thing that I thought, and, and part of the reason that I was was bringing in our guests that we have today, is that it seemed to me that this appointment is going to mean something different. It's going to mean something very special to to a lot of people in the United States because because of who this who this particular nominee will be, even though we don't know her name yet. Oh, no doubt. I mean, um, I think it is in the same way when uh, Hillary Clinton was running for president or look, I remember Geraldine Farrar being the VP uh, on Walter Mondale's uh, ticket. And I and I was excited that there was a possibility that, oh, you know, for the first time we would have a woman that's such a in a, such a high position in our country. Um, because as much as my parents uh, made me uh, help me believe that I could be whatever I wanted uh, around me was not the same, <laughs> you know, whether it was, it, you know, in school or in athletics or, you know, just walking down the street, you know, getting catcalled and being uh, you know, basically marginalized and scrutinized in a different way than men are. Uh, it, it's, it is important. It's impactful and it's necessary. Absolutely. I think that, it sends a message, you know, when we talk about diversity, I think it, it, having inclusive, really not just on the Supreme Court, that's why I want to kind of go beyond this today. Instead of just talking about inclusion in the Supreme Court, I want to talk about inclusion more generally because there's still a, a long ways to go in, in the legal profession, you know, in terms of, let's say, equity partners at law firms, uh, state court judges, district court judges, prosecutors' offices, federal defenders' offices, there's still there's still a road to go to have true equity and inclusion. And I think that there's something gained from having diversity. Absolutely. Well, and I, and I wonder, and I'm looking forward to asking our guest about, you know, because so many of our justices come from Ivy league schools or are in these circles of the elite that a lot of people who come from communities that are not supported by their neighborhoods, by their state funding, their city funding. I mean, just across the board, the way we fund schools is all by property taxes. And you tend to have kids who come from black and brown households living in neighborhoods that don't have the same kind of support you have. Let's say Englewood compared for those who don't know, Englewood's one of the most dangerous impoverished neighborhoods in the city of Chicago competing against kids who are coming from the North Shore, wealthy areas where their kids go to places like Nutrier or private schools. The, the, the road is, is much harder and the, you know, the, the access is, is very narrow for a lot of people. 
Um, and I know that you came up and, and through, you know, the, the background where, you know, you had support and you still are paying off your loans from law school. I mean, you've been around people who have backgrounds that uh, are definitely give them more privilege. And imagine being a woman and a woman of color. It's, you know, <laughs> those opportunities are much farther and fewer between. Yeah, I have to say, I can't completely imagine what what fo- folks are going through who are coming from a community like you said. I mean, for me, I just, you know, I came from a, a working class family where my parents hadn't gone to college or law school or anything like that. And yeah, I'm still, I still have a lot of student loans to pay off. Separately from that, you know, um, there are, there were people in my law school class, I'll just say, who were, you know, second and third degree Yale Law School uh, you know, uh, alumnus, you know, essentially they were, they had this legacy where their, their father had gone to Yale law school, their grandfather had gone to Yale law school for those people. It was an entirely different experience. I mean, I remember, uh, somebody who I went to law school with saying that she was considering quitting law school after a few weeks just to try something different. And I, I, and that, I have to tell you, Betty, that thought had never occurred to me. Uh, cause I remember at the time when she said that, I'm like, wow, like just, I was so all in. Like I, I, if I didn't make it through, I couldn't pay my loans. I, I don't know. I, my, I never considered quitting law school because I just had no other option. It was up, up or down, or I, I don't know what that would have looked like for me if I didn't make it. And so, you know, there is definitely an element of privilege there. And, there is also, I'd say, uh, you know, additional, even more serious hurdles that are faced by by people of color, by 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 women um, that I can't completely understand. And I will tell you, I I am embarrassed to say, Patty, that it's taken me a lot of time in my life to completely understand that. In, in other words, I understood it to an extent, um, but I think when I was in law school, I didn't I didn't fully. Uh, grasp how serious those challenges are. Yeah, I've heard stories about like what women were expected to wear in the courtroom. And I mean, I even remember working in the 90s in a corporate setting where uh, if I wore a skirt, I had to wear a certain type of pantyhose. Uh, and so I'm curious to hear what our guest has to say about that. I mean, I've heard of judges like demanding that women dress a certain way, uh, more feminine, we're only wearing dresses. I mean, it's we're not that far removed within a decade. If And there might even be some places where the, we've talked about judges who have uh, sort of eccentricities uh, and demands in their courtrooms. And and I have to imagine, uh, and, I, you know, I thought about going to law school. Being a woman was never one of the reasons I avoided it. I, I just, uh, you know, I thought I would be better as a scholar. And then I was like, no, nah, I want to be a comic. Um, so without getting any debt, mind you, I was not like at some place uh, where I was on the line for a lot of a lot of money. But, you know, things happen along the way that I would imagine for women, it, it, you know, it's gotten much better. We see that the enrollment is much uh, higher for women and uh, and for people of color. There's still, I think, uh, a lot of barriers to entry for communities that uh, are not reflected on our Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will just say, you know, first of all, there are actually there are federal judges in Chicago uh, who have a policy about what women can wear in the courtroom. There's one really? spoken judge. Yes. In fact, a uh, female judge who's made a big point out of no pantsuits in the courtroom, that sort of what? thing. <laughs> True story. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not going to get into the details of that here, but I will say that's, that's the, that is definitely out there. And, you know, I, the, you know, race is a whole other element that, uh, that I think enter, you know, we're talking about kind of a intersection yep. here. Right. And, 
you know, I, I will say one of the one of the the folks on the short one of the women on the short list, supposedly, if you watch television for President Biden, I went to law school with. And I remember we were both working at the same law firm if for a, as summer associates and we were both hailing a cab and she was in front of me and the cab driver passed her up and went to me. Instead, and I and she and I remember I offered her seat in my cab and we both because we we're both going to the same place. But the cab driver went, you know, 15 extra feet to pick me up. And I I, rem, I, I remember after we got there uh, at the location, I was like, how much should I tip him? And I didn't even think I wasn't even thinking, Patty, about what had happened. I thought of nothing. I just was like, oh, OK, he, he passed me up. And she gave me this look, like, "What are you? What are you? Th- why are you giving the? I mean, why are you giving this guy anything?" And she got out of the cab, and I, I ended up. I, I just always tip cab drivers, but I, I look back on it, and I felt very stupid. I felt very ignorant when I look back on that now, right? And there, that's nothing, I'm sure, compared to what she's had to experience in her life, right? The judgments that she's had put on her, and that's really what I think. A one of that that life experience, I think, does really add something to the Supreme Court. That's in a social situation or, or in, a, in a real life situation outside of the classroom or the courtroom. Not that the courtroom is not real life or classes, but you know, the it, there she can like tell you like that was wrong, right? Whereas in a classroom or in a courtroom, women, I women and women of color, people of color have to smile. And do whatever is expected of them, play along by somebody else's rules that diminish who they are as a person. And we feel that burn, that hostility, that uh, degradation, uh, and and have to carry that with too. I mean, like it is uh, it, the psychological toll will never be uh, captured as to what people have to go through in order to just get to, you know, that what typically have been white male dominated positions. Yeah, well, you know, our guest is going to definitely be able to give us some insight into this. Uh, Fatima Gossgraves is just fantastic. Before I, um, br- before I bring her in and tell you a little bit about her, though, I do want to thank BetterHelp, uh, which brought us today's podcast. BetterHelp is bringing you professional online counseling whenever you need it most. You know, we go to the gym. We take vitamins. We get annual checkups from our doctor to make sure our physical body is healthy. We need to take care of our mental health, too. Going to therapy is the same sort of thing. Mental health care is health care. Routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness prevents bigger issues down the road. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you could start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and on-topic listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash on-topic. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash on-topic. All right, and let me introduce Fatima Gossgraves. 
She Fatima is a nationally recognized leader in the fight for gender justice. Uh, she is a president, the, the president and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. She's president of the National Women's Law Center Action Fund, and she's a co-founder of the Times Up Legal Defense Fund. She has a just a fantastic uh, track record, fo- you know, fighting for issues in the law with a particular focus on outcome for women and girls of color. She is herself a black woman. And I will confess, she is my, was my law school classmate at Yale Law School. We'll see if she wants to talk about some of our classmates that are on the short list. Uh, but she's somebody who I think can give us a breadth of experience, somebody who spent many years herself not only dealing with these issues personally, but fighting for women and girls of color through her work at the National Women's Law Center. So let's bring in Fatima Goss-Graves. Welcome to the podcast, Fatima. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. You know, this is an overdue conversation, and I, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the recent news that we had. Obviously, Justice Breyer announced his intention to retire. The president has indicated that he intends to nominate the first black woman ever to sit on the United States Supreme Court. Uh, it's safe to say that that's pretty overdue. Uh, I was talking with Patty before this that we've had uh, only seven non-white men on the Supreme Court throughout history. What can you just tell us what the what this uh, uh, upcoming appointment means to you? What do you th- what do you think it means to you and to the nation? Well, I should begin by saying that I'm unapologetically excited about it. I I think it's not only long overdue. I I actually have been really reflecting on. Uh, how we have lost out over the decades by not having a Black woman on that court or on most courts. Um, I, you know, I think about well, what it, would it have looked like if someone like Marian Wright Edelman, the founder of the Children's Defense Fund, or Elaine Jones, who was a longtime head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, if if they were a part of our judiciary or on the Supreme Court, um, and and so I'm I'm filled with energy and excitement and real pride about this time. You know, Patty was talking a little bit about what it meant for her when Sonia Sotomayor was appointed. I think this is it, it's it's excite it's exciting. Um, but yet I think it's also an opportunity for us to reflect a little bit about the progress that we still have to make. You, I suspect you would agree that uh, all throughout our legal profession, there has, has been a lack of inclusion, uh, whether it's, it's law, uh, law firms, uh, state courts, federal courts, prosecutors' offices, defense, uh, 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 public defenders. There, there, are, there is not uh, the, the type of inclusion that we want in any uh, on any level of the law from uh, in terms of positions of power. I think that's absolutely right. And what I would say is that it's those institutions that are worse off for it. And, and now that we're in a moment where the country is really being introduced sort of one by one to many really talented, talented black women attorneys in this country, um, I think that will help not just around this particular nomination and confirmation process. I think it will help 
all those other institutions start to question themselves why why they're why, why their law firms why you know why the DA office why the state government why academia why it does not actually better reflect this country and and the way in which we know that uh, life experience and perspective and background matter in terms of changing conversations. Um, we've, we've just lost out again and again over the years. And so I'm hoping it'll be a real call for people to, to move to actually build institutions that, that look differently. And, and, and I would say it would be easy if we could say, well, it's just law firms that really need to focus or, or it really is just, uh, you know, the federal judiciary where we need to focus. We, we actually have work to do all around in the law. Yeah, I I think that's 100% correct. And now, you know, to me too, I think these things, they have a multiplier effect. In other words, if you work on inclusion in law firms, if you work on inclusion in prosecutors' offices, if you work on inclusion in the state or federal judiciary, it tends to mean that we're going to have more inclusion in other areas of the law. Because, of course, uh, when you're looking for somebody for you know who to handle a particular case or to fill a particular judicial vacancy, of course, people do look at uh, who's in these uh, you know related areas who's had that type of experience. And so to me, it's important to make sure that this opens a conversation about every every level of our judiciary and every part of our, of our legal uh, system or, or, or our, uh, you know, our, whether it's private or public, because to me, you, you know, what we want to be thinking about is not just this particular appointee, which who is important, but all the you know, appointees for the future, women who aren't even yet in the law. Well, that's right. That's absolutely right. And and I think, I imagine that watching whoever she is go before the Judiciary Committee, be introduced to this country in, in really clear terms, that will shift people saying, this might be something I can do too. I, I, you know, it, it's sort of the dreams of little girls and not so little <laughs> um, will be thinking differently about what's possible for them in their careers, in their lives. And, and, and that's important. Uh, I, I wanted to ask too, because Renata was just, you were both talking a little bit about not just, you know, the, the in positions of being judges or in these law firms, it is the every single day of whether it's in law school or when you are in these uh, big companies, the access, right? There are, there's, a, there's even more elite access, whether it's, you know, guys on the golf course or clubs that only until recently allowed people of color and women to enter where we could have those conversations, make those connections that often lead to, you know, the ascension to these positions that everyone should have access to. Does that make sense? That's absolutely right. And it, and it starts pretty early. You know, I, I think about when I was a law clerk, there weren't other black women who were clerking at the same time until the very end of my clerkship, there was someone who came and and worked for another judge. And when I was at a law firm, similarly, there weren't Black women partners around um, in in my office. 
And I think about space after space where you're either the only person or where some of the gatekeeping that happens, the informal gatekeeping that happens with who gets invited to lunch and who gets invited to the social events and, and who looks like whom and reminds you of yourself when you were younger. Those are all things that allow for a sort of informal both the formal tracks of elevation, but also the informal tracks are that Black women often experience in different ways. I do want to say, though, that that's what's been really exciting, I think, to see so many names out there is it's that it's just a reminder that all of these folks are out there and there could be many, many more. So whatever perceptions people are holding that there isn't talent to be found, those perceptions are wrong. Yes. We were talking, yeah, this is something that is really uh, stuck in my craw, this idea there's been these people saying, oh, there aren't that many qualified nominees or that the best nominees aren't being considered and this and that. I mean, I personally know several at least just off the top of my head qualified nominees or black women for the United States Supreme Court not only classmates of ours from law school but people who I've practiced against people who are judges that I appear in front of all the time some names that we hear on TV some names that we don't but there are plenty I mean I personally know plenty so I can only imagine how many qualified candidates there are out there in the United States for sure that's a, I, I actually think that's why it's a tough task for the president. I mean, this is a narrowing, but not a narrowing, really, for him to start with that he was looking for someone with, you know, impeccable credentials and qualifications, experience and integrity. And then to say, and and I will make history by naming the black, the first black woman to the Supreme Court. You know, you might think that that narrows down the list to one or two people. There's a long list of people who who fit his criteria. So this is not going to be an easy decision. I, 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 you know, there's maybe some things that make it easier. And, and there are names that have been bandied about in the way that, you know, the sort of game of predicting goes. Uh, but the truth is the the real list of people who meet his threshold is a very, very long list. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it just there are many federal district judges, federal circuit court judges just that I can think of that would meet that criteria. There are certainly people who aren't. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett never had judicial experience. There are plenty and I there are plenty of 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 black women who have never been on a, a court but would be a fantastic Supreme Court justice. So, I agree with you. I think there's a, there are a lot of picks out there that he could make. And frankly, one thing that I do think is actually nice about this process, Fatima, is it's getting uh, folks to talk about uh, a wider array of lawyers. In other words, only one of these women will be the appointee, but they're they're all very impressive people, at least the ones that I know uh, are very impressive. And I think just being part of this conversation, I think, is is helpful. There's no question. So let's I want us to shift gears a little bit, because one thing that I think is um, worth noting, I mean, you work you are the president of the National Women's Law Center. You've devoted your legal career to fighting for equality for women and girls. 
And that doesn't just come through appointments, things like that. That comes through actually using the law as a tool to move forward uh, issues and causes that, you know, using the law as a way of promoting uh, the interests, for example, of women and girls, making sure that there's equality, let's say, that they have, they can exercise their reproductive rights and so forth. Can you talk to us a little bit about the work you've done and why you decided to make that a focus of your legal career? Yeah, you know, I I am someone who believes deeply in the power of the law, both our ability to create a, a set of rules that um, bind our cultural decisions and cultural norms, um, and our ability to push our culture at times. Uh, and, and some of that comes from my own understanding of the law through my family. You know, my, my parents were each, uh, their families were each plaintiffs in school desegregation cases. So when I was growing up, I really understood the law as this really powerful tool that could push us along um, and help us be a better and more democratic country. And, and I feel very lucky to be in a role where in my day job, I can think about the law and policy as a way to really further uh, gender justice in this country. And and we do that in a lot of ways at the law center. We, we, you know, sometimes are litigators and actually are representing individual clients in court to make our laws come to life. We are working around the country and at the federal level to pass new laws, sometimes to stop bad ones from happening. <laughs> Um, and we are really thinking deeply about how to engage in our society and in our culture, because, you know, you could have the best rule on the books, but if you aren't having the cultural movement to match it, you're going to lose every time. And so we think about law really broadly at the, at the law center, but in, in ways, I think that, um, match what is really possible when used right. Well, you know, one thing that is an issue both in the legal profession and outside of it is inequity in pay for women. Can you talk about how the law can be used as uh, a way of narrowing that pay gap? Yeah, I mean, that's a good that's a very good example because we are coming up next year will be the the Equal Pay Act will turn 60 years old next year. And, and so there are lots of folks who think, well, we already have a law that says you can't uh, discriminate in pay. What else do we need? And what we have learned over time is that A, our laws aren't strong enough. Right. And that there are things that you can do to put real teeth in the equal pay laws so that so that employers have the right incentives to pay their employees correctly the first time. And right now, those incentives are real off. But beyond that, we do a lot of work to actually get at some of the, the underlying reasons that make it easier to pay people unfairly. One of the things that 
uh, is the case is that pay is still pretty secret. It's hard to know what you make versus someone else. It's hard to know that as a job applicant or as someone who's working at a company. And if you're in the dark around pay, you're unlikely to try to challenge it. And pretty much all of that information is in the hands of the employer. And so what we've seen over the last couple of years is that a number of states have moved forward to make pay more transparent. They've passed laws to require employers, for example, to post salary ranges. They've passed laws to make it clear that you can't set someone's salary just based on their past salary so that people aren't bringing lower pay from job to job. And that's having an effect on top of the work to actually make our equal pay laws stronger and more effective. Now, I have to say it's something, and I imagine, by the way, Patty, that that's something that you've have some experience with as well, right? Just it's 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 got to be absolutely infuriating to not be receiving. It's almost there. It's beyond money. It's dignity, right? About how you're how you're paid. And we we have in Illinois passed that legislation as far as uh, your past uh, salary history should not be uh, part of the you know, the basis for your salary coming into a new job. And I, we had so many long conversations about this. People were like, you know, well, what are the employers supposed to do? They need something. And it's so hard when you come across, you know, try to explain to people that historically we are paid less. And I'm very upfront. I remember I told one of my coworkers at WGN radio how much I made and she couldn't believe it. And then I found out how much the guys were making. And it's true. If you don't know, you don't know what to fight for. And we live in, in this in the darkness. And I, I have to wonder, Fatima, what do, you know, how have the last four years with the explosion of Me Too and the work that you're doing, um, how, how would you categorize? I mean, like there's been progress, but I feel like there's also been like this tremendous backlash. How do you balance that? Yeah, well, you know, I, Michelle Alexander has that view, it's possible that we are the backlash <laughs> and, and what we are, are doing is fighting against the, the status quo. Um, but, you know, when Me Too went viral, and I would also add things like the Women's March and uh, the, the national protests that you have seen around abortion access, in my mind, those are all around the same question about whether or not women in this country um, can be treated with dignity and are equal. And so you're going to keep seeing variations of an uprising as long as that answer is is no. Um, and and so you know sometimes you're in deep acceleration moments, and I and I'd say I've been lucky enough to experience some of them experience, you know, working with folks on the ground as me too was going viral experience, um, working with survivors who've been telling their stories and, and, and launching and co-founding times up legal defense fund. Um, but we are always going to be facing, uh, a, a sometimes small but consistent set of folks who are trying to undermine that progress, who are seeking not to have change. And the, that's one of the reasons why legal change is important, because you're, a cultural win might come back at you in a serious way. But if you were able to set 
um, a new threshold, a new bar, and have that be the law in a state or or in uh, at the federal level, then you're in a really good place. And and we saw that happen after Me Too went viral. About 15 states changed their laws within about a two year period. And so we were seeing, you know, some were better than others, but we were seeing really rich conversations and an understanding that people had to be responsive to a very vocal uprising that was grounded in personal stories about how they were experiencing work and school and what their housing situations were like. One thing that I I also want to make sure that we cover while we have time to talk to you is reproductive rights, because... For so many folks, they're starting to awaken to the fact that this uh, current Supreme Court uh, is a threat to their reproductive rights, potentially. And this justice may or may not have an impact on that, given the the way that the, the current court breaks down. Can you talk to us a little bit about where you see reproductive rights uh, right now in, ter- in terms of protections in the courts and what uh, the you know NWLC and other organizations are are trying to do to ensure that women still have access to their reproductive rights. Well, we are now five and a half months into an effective bor- abortion ban in the state of Texas, and what that means is um, a lot of people are having to leave the state to access constitutionally protected healthcare. And what it means is that um, the effect of it on on people who have low income, on people of color, it's felt more acutely on people who already have children, right? Um, You know, the studies have shown that most women who are seeking abortion care already have, have children. And so it's it you know there are disruptions to their lives to their families and it's in the texas law is especially cruel because it also has this vigilante mechanism and which which basically turns neighbor on neighbor and and heightens um the already uh very serious and dangerous work that abortion providers provide um, having to deal with really hostile folks, having to deal with, um, you know, a movement that is well-worn, that is also prone to violence. You know, a lot of people are providing care under really sometimes scary conditions. So, The Supreme Court could have done what it typically does when a law conflicts with the Constitution and long history of precedent on its face is stay that terrible law while the litigation continued. And the fact that we're in a situation that the litigation is continuing against the Texas abortion ban and the law is not stayed is just a a travesty. And it means that we are in a situation where two things are happening. One, we are preparing for the decision in the Mississippi abortion ban case. And that case does not have the Texas uh, vigilante mechanism, but it is an abortion ban that on its face conflicts with Roe. And we are preparing for the worst 
And the only reason we were preparing for the worst is how dramatically um, off the court has been this term with decisions that fly against precedent, with process that is just shocking all of us to the core. Um, and, And the court itself is having a problem with its own legitimacy at this moment, which um, as someone who uh, sort of came up uh, with a different expectation around the court and the rule of law and its core place in our democracy, I'm I am deeply disappointed. I'm deeply disappointed in where we are as a country. And part of our task right now is to really level with people about what is happening. It is not typical and we all should be concerned. And I think our job is going to be no matter the result of the decision. You know, Roe was always a pretty terrible floor, but it was a floor that you couldn't go beneath. Our task is going to make sure is to do work to ensure as many people get the care that they want and need and aid that in happening in all the ways imaginable and treating it as the crisis it is and planning for a different future. I do believe we're in the middle on a number of fronts. Abortion is one um, I, I think on voting in our democracy is another. We're, we have to take a pretty long view that um, forces us to really think about the country we want to be and the country we're building towards. I, I have to ask, because I'm sure somebody else out there will wonder the same thing. When you say that Roe v. Wade was a terrible floor, uh, can you expand on that a little bit? And, and what would be a, you know, a scenario that... It, better protects women's reproductive health and rights and autonomy? Well, the reason Roe as a floor has been a challenge and and part of it has been opinions over time is it doesn't guarantee that people who have low income can access abortion care. And so you really have on the ground really two types of, of healthcare available. You have um, a a right that um, might feel sort of hollow for people who already can't afford um, to access care. And, and also, you know, what we have seen over the last decade in particular is an acceleration of a range of laws that have eroded access for a lot of people. So in, especially in the South and parts of the Midwest, you have a lot of people who were already having to travel, who already were facing a range of barriers, whether it is sort of lawful stigmatizing and um, their doctors reading scripts to shame them as a part of the procedure, or having to have waiting periods, which mean more time off of work, which if you are someone who um, has a job that doesn't have paid leave might put you at risk of losing your job just to access abortion care. So already, especially for people with low income, they were experiencing a lot of hardship in terms of accessing abortion care. What, where I would have rather spend my time is thinking more about how, how do we actually make it 
real for people so that they are able to determine their lives and futures how they want to, that they're able to provide, um, that they're able to access the care that they need, that they can parent and parent with dignity if that's what they want, or they can decide, I don't want to be a parent. And, and they can make choices that are healthy around their lives. I would love for that to be precisely what we're building towards and how we're spending our time and the idea that I'm having to spend any time basically fighting for the bare dignity of what it means to be equal in this country um, is disappointing to me. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. I I agree with that. I, I will say too, you know, one thing that is really important about what you said you talked about is the circuit you know just the having uh reproductive rights technically available on paper is very different than how that works in practice and there's been a lot of burdens placed on reproductive rights but you know one thing you mentioned is travel you know the state of texas is a huge state if you live in the middle of the state of texas um, it, you know, of course, if you are a wealthy person, you could fly to New York or to or to Chicago or wherever to get uh, your reproductive uh, rights uh, exercised in proper health care. But if if you're somebody who is not in a very fortunate situation, it's a long drive to get across the border to find a state where there are going to be clinics available because a lot of the bordering states like Oklahoma and Mississippi also don't have uh, a lot of availability. I th- that is right. And, you know, if the court rules and upholds the Mississippi ban, what we can expect is a number of states to move fast to further restrict access to abortion care. So I, you know, for those who are in different parts of the country who are thinking, mm, I, you know, that's really terrible for Texas or too bad for Mississippi, um, they they may not be thinking that this is coming to their doorstep. And what I would like to tell folks is that it is. It is absolutely coming to your doorstep. About half the states have laws in place that could mean a dramatic shift pretty quickly if Roe were overturned. There are more states that I think would engage in special sessions to bring on further abortion restrictions. And the other states that are there are not prepared to receive patients from around the country. We, we are, are on purpose, on the cusp of diving into a giant public health crisis. I'm not sure why we would do that. I really, really hope there is time for this not to be our future. But that is where we are right now. If there's ever anyone who thinks that judicial nominations, judicial appointments don't matter. I think this is a great example of why, and to kind of bring us full circle to our initial uh, discussion here, why they're so important. Because this has been something, Fatima, since you and I were in law school decades ago, that there was a lot of folks on the right who are trying to make this impending decision a reality. Uh, And frankly, it's just, to me, from my perspective, Part of it is because people on the right put more emphasis, more resources, and were willing to to be ruthless and do more to advance judicial appointments uh, than than uh, than the Democrats were. Well, I do think it 
has taken a long time for people to understand why courts matter, the value of the courts, uh, the ability to engage. You know, some for for a lot of people, the, the idea of the courts seems very far removed from their day to day lives, and it's cases like this that I think will bring it home. Whether or not you have to st- to your inability to access the healthcare you want, that might bring it home. Whether or not you now have to stand in line at, to vote for seven hours, that might bring it home. The, the court makes all sorts of determinations that, that affect our lives. We just don't always talk about it in that way. And that was probably a mistake over the years. Do we have anything, you know, uh, Renato just mentioned the the focus and the organization, you know, we talk about the Federalist Society and, and groups like that. Do Is there something that, is there an organization that uh, encourages and fosters that sort of uh, next class of who we want to have reflect us in the judicial system? Is there that focus <laughs> on a, a- I mean, there's, there certainly are now, um, and more than, you know, when we were in law school, I don't even think that uh, the American Constitutional Society had been born yet. I think it happened maybe right after uh, we left. Um, but that is, you know, they have chapters in law schools in different parts of the country. Um, and then there's, there are a lot of groups that engage on the, the question of judicial nominations and have been having a more public conversation. There's, you know, the National Women's Law Center does, but there's groups like the Alliance for Justice and, and Demand Justice that do that. And, and around this campaign for the first Black women on the Supreme Court, there's a group called She Will Rise that is engaging in a really remarkable campaign that is not only highlighting the range of Black women lawyers who could be considered, but also talking, telling sort of a history of uh, Black women in the judiciary and trying to explain really deeply why courts matter. So we're, you know, I think we're all late later to the game than is necessary, but that work is starting to happen. Uh, and I, I'm encouraged by by those efforts. We certainly on uh, this podcast have been supporters of the uh, of ACS, the American Constitution Society. And I do want to just uh, I do want to give you an opportunity, Fatima, to talk a little bit about the work that NWLC does and what our listeners can do if they want to get involved, if they want to support your organization. How can they do that? Well, I'm glad you asked that. People can find us on our website at nwlc.org or follow us on our various social channels on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and, and TikTok. I will just say I am not really on TikTok, but we are as an organization. I'm sometimes allowed to come on there too. Um, and and you can find out how to engage in campaigns. We work across the issues that affect women and girls around health and reproductive rights, but workplace, education, income security, and childcare. And our work looks different in different ways. If you need legal assistance, there are, you can contact us for legal assistance. But there are lots of ways for people to engage in their community on the range of issues of today. And we really hope that you will join us in these fights. 
Thank you, Fatima. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been fantastic. And uh, I definitely learned from the conversation. Thanks again. And uh, we will uh, be excited to see who the nominee is going to be going forward. And hopefully that's just the beginning of a broader conversation about some of the issues we've talked about. Me too. So good to be with you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 